I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Ben Reed, who is the Director of Cyber Espionage Analysis at Mandia, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies, and he is also the co-lead of the NextGen Cyber and Tech Working Group. Ben, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. I just wanted to insert the, the normal caveat that I'm here in my, my personal capacity, and my views don't reflect those of, of any of my employers. Curious, how did you become interested in cyber issues? I ended up starting on cyber in graduate school. So I, after college, was on the Obama campaign and then had worked at the, the White House and in the Obama administration, left that to go to grad school at SIPA uh, up in Columbia. And my summer internship there was at a, a company called iSight Partners. And that was a company that just did cyber threat intel, tracking what bad guys are up to. And went back there after grad school and got a job. And that company was eventually bought by FireEye, which is now fully rebranded as Mandiant. So it's been a lot of business cards in in the six years I've been doing this. But was familiar with computers and sort of things like that before. Came from a more traditional security diplomacy background. And that's kind of why I was brought on to the cyber side to bring that to the table, because it definitely is relevant. But since I've been doing this for, for six years now, have really dug into the technical stuff and work on that more day to day. How do you think about your own personal cybersecurity? Are you someone who like has only the most secure phone? You would never connect to Starbucks Wi-Fi. Like, like how do you think about security for yourself? So, I mean, and sort of with the overall caveat that whatever called a threat model, which is where sort of like who is going to be after your information, and I'm a fairly public figure, not like Barbara Streisand, but I am out here sort of like commenting on cyber things like that. I do expect some interest in in my my personal information. And the two things that I try to do, I I guess three things. One is kind of just keep things up to date, apply updates. The second is use a password manager. And that's more for like, if you you count them up, you generally have 100, 200 accounts at various places online, and you can't remember all those passwords. Password reuse is one of the the easiest ways for sort of like the low-hanging fruit. And then for the really important accounts, my email, social media, things like that, sort of using hardware key-based second factor. I do this for a living and I know sort of I can be tricked to enter my password at the wrong spot. And so using the hardware key-based two-factor as opposed to the code, the code you can type in on a wrong website and there's software to kind of type it that very quickly and log in. But the hardware-based two-factor kind of defeats that and means that you have to have this physical thing with you in order to, to log into those accounts. So that combined sort of, and specifically in my case with Google's advanced protection program, which kind of locks down additional things if you use Gmail. That's what I do. I mean, Starbucks Wi-Fi is generally not going to be your biggest problem at this point. I mean, that's really from a days before HTTPS was everywhere. Be careful traveling internationally if, if you're going to countries that might be interested in you and things like that. But mostly it's just those three updates, password manager and hardware-based two-factor will get you 95% of the way there. Do you think that either private companies or the government should be more active at dealing with these cyber hygiene issues and more forceful in pushing this kind of stuff out? Because I think, as you said, the majority of cases for most people who are not Barbara Streisand level cyber gods as you are, they just need to have a password manager. They just need to turn on two-factor authentication and they'll be relatively safe. 
But I feel like that's not that's not getting pushed out there hard enough. And thus, a lot of people are at risk. Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing increasing that they're sort of increasing. I mean, it's sort of like a slow build. I think Google is planning to essentially auto enroll a big chunk of their their user base into two factor. And I'm curious that this hasn't been financially viable, but for banks, for accounts that have to do with money, for things like that, that if you have customers, like it can, it can help you to give them a sort of hardware token to give them something there to really secure those accounts. Because there are, if somebody gets into my like Neopets account, it's not going to be a big deal. And so that one's sort of like, you don't need to worry as much. So there's sort of like tragedy of the commons kind of things there. But for the accounts you have with big corporations or potentially the government for your social security account or things like that, I think it sort of getting to that hardware based stuff can be effective. And it can even be a single factor hardware thing may be more secure than a single factor password that you remember. Obviously, you run the risk of losing it. But I think that that can be a good thing. And I think we're, we're getting there. I mean, nothing is sort of the password baked in kind of the old lessons of never write down your password when kind of the biggest threat was somebody getting physically to your computer where that's really not that's really not where we are now and sort of moving past those kind of folk wisdom of cybersecurity just takes time. It is interesting because I think most national security issues don't have a sort of localized or personal component to it. And yet cybersecurity is one of the issues where that is the case, where all of us sort of intuitively understand the risk of government-sponsored massive cyber attacks uh, on, on government entities because either we ourselves or people we know have been the victim of some sort of cybersecurity issue or breach in the past on a much more personal level. And that doesn't exist on, you know, issues like nuclear proliferation or or things that really only exist at kind of like a federal level. The interactions with both the, the general public and the private sector are really what give it its own contours. And that's the case from, from the stuff you talked about with the very local, the ability of a criminal in, you know, 5,000 miles away to steal somebody's credit card number and steal somebody's identity, do something like that makes law enforcement very tricky. Like if you are a local police department, it is very hard to use the sort of mutual legal aid things to try to get information. And it's just kind of, it's very difficult, but it also, because the private sector runs so much of what is the internet, whether it's the backbone getting run by routing companies, whether it's sort of Facebook and Google and Amazon running the infrastructure, even for many government stuff, the interconnectedness between the public sector and the, the private sector and individuals really is, is what makes this kind of a, a fun thing to think about and also really complicated. I want to get back to the public-private issue in a bit, but stepping back a little bit, I know you do cyber espionage analysis. Can you tell us like what is that and what exactly do you actually do every day? My responsibility for cyber espionage is because of how Mandiant divides up our Intel team. So we divide based on actor motivation, mostly. So I run our espionage team, my colleague Kimberly runs our crime team. And these groups, there's obviously some overlap with the North Koreans, with sort of APT-41, a Chinese group. So there, there are times when we work together, but they tend to be different ways of acting. And what I mean by cyber espionage is sort of the way we define it is state-sponsored groups sort of working for the benefit of a state that are primarily interested in stealing information. And obviously there's lots of Blind cases, and we work with our information operations team when that information is subsequently publicized, and we sort of collaborate across here and across the industry. But 
the state-backed groups tend to operate in kind of a different way and with different motivations than the sort of criminal groups where things are much more fragmented. Dmitry Alperovich, who was the founder of CrowdStrike or a co-founder of CrowdStrike, has often said that we don't have a cyber problem. We have a Russia problem. We have a North Korea problem. We have a China problem. Do you think that's true? Do you think that we don't have a cyber problem? Or do you think that there are some core issues that we still have to solve and that nation states or, or criminal actors are just taking advantage of a space that favors the attacker? In terms of the state-sponsored stuff, that's a very good way of looking at it. Because we may someday get to the point where it's machines who are autonomously hacking, but right now there, there are people behind the keyboard. There are people who are doing this. And it's important to remember when you talk about cyberspace that they're both people sort of human victims, but also like somebody had to type it and make a, a political or tactical criminal decision to do something. And so to the extent that these countries are doing things we don't like, it's a problem that is a deliberate choice by those countries to do things. However, the world is really big, and especially from the criminal side and from the ransomware side, there is a certain amount of deterrence by denial is a little more highfalutin than it deserves, but a certain amount of kind of securing the defenses, securing resilience, things like that, that are necessary because you're not going to be able to defeat everyone. You're not going to be able, even if sort of you meet sort of like a grand bargain with North Korea, Iran, China, and Russia. I mean, even just saying that out loud, like there are way bigger issues with those countries than just computer intrusions, and they're not likely to be solved anytime soon. You have criminals, you have people. And so the continued effort towards general security and and resilience and things like that are going to pay dividends, whether it's making sure a misconfigured CDN file doesn't knock things off or a squirrel doesn't chew through something versus sort of a sort of an intentional cyber attack. That point is correct, but it doesn't obliviate the need to really invest in resilience and things like that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. On the last episode that we did, it was with Kate Guy, and Kate talked about how there were some lessons learned from cyber for climate work. And I think there are also some lessons learned potentially between cyber and global health because so much of this is about hygiene, about the very local level and dealing with those issues. What are some of those lessons around either resiliency or trying to communicate a very technical thing to a non-technical audience? Do you think we can learn from those other sort of schools of issues? The analogy I use is often sort of learning from the, the climate sector not in a sort of technical way, but in a way of having to get a wide variety of actors to implement best practices. And you can, in the, the climate sector, I mean, there are, you do cap and trade, you do carbon tax, you can do specific environmental regulations about individual like ban two-stroke motors or something. And similarly, in the cyberspace, you're working as, whether you're at the CISA level, whether you're at the legislative level, you are trying to get a lot of private sector agency companies to do something that where the costs to them may outweigh the immediate benefits to them, where you're trying to get them to do something that's going to benefit everybody, that's going to be good, but isn't necessarily like, I got $5, I can invest in, pay for some advertising for something, or I can upgrade my router. And sort of those kind of making 
the diverse array of people you need to work together to get to better security is where the overlap, I really sort of see the overlap with climate and the ability of the government to induce that. It's, it's a bureaucratic kind of like, how do we best align the incentives? Whether is that regulations? Is that something else to get people to implement these practices? Ransomware is getting like a lot of attention these days. Um, and, you know, the White House just recently released a fact sheet on their work on ransomware. I'm wondering if you could kind of put in perspective for us how big a challenge ransomware is, what sort of risks it poses, and also what, what you think of the administration's efforts so far uh, to try to combat it. This is four podcasts worth of, worth of a question, but I'll try to, try to give an answer. There's been sort of cybercrime for a long time. I mean, certainly seven or eight years ago, I mean, you saw much more widespread stealing of credit card numbers, identity theft, things like that. And both with the sort of the, some of the anti-fraud stuff and the PKI chips, I can't remember if that's the right acronym, but the difficulty in kind of spoofing credit cards, that, that's gotten less attractive. And ransomware has really stepped in there. And ransomware started off where it would just lock up a single computer. If you clicked on the wrong email, your computer would be ransomed and it would be $70, $200 to get your one computer. And what the cyber criminals figured out is if you lock up a whole company, that is a lot more money. And so these intrusions that maybe eight years ago, they would have gotten a company and they would have like stolen the credit card numbers or stolen bank account numbers from the finance department, they're now deploying ransomware across the whole environment and able to demand payment. And that's effective in two ways. It's both you get paid, but what cryptocurrency allows you to do is much more straightforwardly monetize that. Because you get credit card numbers. Credit card numbers are great, but you need to have the infrastructure to either buy something you want, but that gets tricky because then you, all of a sudden you can track that credit, stolen credit card number. And if you ship it to your house, they know who did it. So you have cutouts, you have mules, and it's a whole big infrastructure. But if you get a cryptocurrency payout, that's the point of cryptocurrency is it's non-reversible. That is a feature, not a bug of that. And obviously Bitcoin can be can be tracked a little bit, but other ones are more anonymous and they're, they're mixers and ways to sort of launder that. It's a sort of much lower percentage of it that sort of takes the laundering. And it's been a growth industry. They've invested in capabilities and cryptocurrency is not, was not, sort of Bitcoin was not the first way of sort of sending electronic money. There were e-gold and sort of like older school things there, but it's allowed these criminal organizations to specialize. I mean, we put out our uh, FIN12 report last week that uh, I think is good, good done by my colleagues on the crime team, but it really shows that they're, they're not doing the, the full spectrum. Somebody else is getting access and then they hand off that access to FIN12. And then FIN12 takes that access and works with somebody else who deploys ransomware and runs receiving the payment. And everybody gets a slice and you don't need to trust somebody because you can get immediately paid in cryptocurrency. You don't need to be near them to get a, a briefcase full of cash. And so it's really enabled a lot of specialization. I mean, sort of like your classic kind of Henry Ford factory thing. Like it's enabled them to get better. And the amount of money that's been paid has allowed for investments and paying people for stuff. I mean, they're, they're essentially businesses like any others. So it's fair to say that, that crypto has essentially facilitated the rise of ransomware, that we wouldn't be facing this today if, if we hadn't seen such a proliferation of cryptocurrencies and, and sort of untrackable networks. It's a really hard counterfactual because there were sort of ways to do this before Bitcoin, at least. They weren't necessarily blockchain-based, but there was kind of e-gold. 
but definitely the sort of the high value of it, the relative ease of it has certainly been part of what's contributed to this. So why don't we just ban e-currencies? Why do we need them? Why don't we just have the US dollar and then an e-dollar that's backed by the treasury and that's how all online stuff is transacted? At the risk of blowing up my, my, my Twitter mentions for <laughs> people like it, banning it is probably, it is very hard to accomplish successfully. And it is not a like, if you ban guns, only the criminals will have guns kind of if you ban cryptocurrency, only the criminals will use it kind of scenario, because it, it, it is so widely proliferated, it's going to be hard to put that to sort of like, it's not a switch you can flip off. I do think some of the some of the moves from, from the US government from other ones, I know this was something discussed at the, the White House summit yesterday in terms of trying to apply a lot of the know your customer anti-money laundering standards that are common across traditional banks to a lot of the interfaces. And I know sort of some of the bigger US-based ones are doing that. But yeah, I don't know enough about the legal and the sort of financial side to to give you the perfect answer there. But I think limiting the amount of ways for it to sort of to launder it and do things like that in the same way it's done with traditional currency is a is an important step. I want to go back to the the public private question that we were starting to uh, discuss a while back. You mentioned that so much of the cybersecurity industry and developments in the field are coming from the private sector rather than the public sector. There was news recently that that Google created this new cybersecurity team that's specifically focused on cyber attacks, not against itself, but against government, uh, governments and critical infrastructure providers and, and so forth. And I guess I'm curious how you think about the interaction of the public and private sectors here and whether the incentives are really aligned and and should a lot of this work be coming from the, the the private sector, or should we be building up capacity within government instead? How do you think about what the right balance is there? So I think we need to build capacity, period. And there is a correct mix between the public and private sector. And I don't know exactly what that mix is, but the reason you need the private sector is because so much of the internet is run by the private sector. So unless you're going to have a government takeover of the big cloud providers, you need to have them providing some, and companies like mine, Mandiant, Microsoft, Google, AWS, you need to have them have a security function because especially with the centralization of information in the cloud, some of the patterns, and Microsoft blogged on this with some password spray stuff last week. I know Google reported on some APT28 phishing emails as well, where if you're one even decent sized company, you may see the part that hits you. But if but Microsoft, which sees something like Password Spray, which is trying like fall 2020, 2021, exclamation point, if they see one IP address, try that one password against five accounts of company A, five accounts of company B, and all of a sudden that's a thousand password attempts. Each company is just going to see five missed passwords. They're not going to be able to recognize that as necessarily malicious. People have typos, things like that. But if you're Microsoft and you see one IP address try the same password across a thousand accounts in five minutes, that's going to set off a flag. And so sort of the centralization of telemetry with a lot of this stuff means that it is an opportunity to detect some of that activity that that in an individual company, even the best setup, the best, most, all of the security controls just is going to be hard to see. And also, we don't necessarily want the government watching all of the logins of these thousand private companies. 
So I think having a security function at private companies is needed. And it mean it is both it is good for them to do for their customers, but it inevitably interacts with interstate relations because it's states who are trying to get into some of these companies. And there's important information sharing and important sort of support that the government can give to the private sector when they find out things as well. But I think it's inevitable that the private sector is going to have a significant role because of its role in doing so many of the things online. Why do you think that we are so at risk? Is it that, you know, we just have the biggest attack surface? Is it that other countries have a lot of the resources in-house? You know, they pay hacker more hackers than we do, better hackers than we have. What do you think is it that's leaving America so vulnerable? So I don't think that the U.S. is uniquely vulnerable. So I'm going to dispute the premise of the question a bit. I don't think that the large adversaries are inherently more secure or things like that. I mean, you certainly you have edge cases like North Korea where there's just not that much that's computerized. And so they're sort of, you're vulnerable in kind of a, in that way of not having adopted many of these sort of connected technologies. But yeah, I don't think that sort of China or Russia are sort of like, that their full stack of corporations are, are inherently more secure. I think you see, I mean, they've definitely, they have had issues. I mean, you can go back to the NotPetya attack and obviously originated in Ukraine affected a number of Western companies, but also disrupted operations at Gazprom, presumably unintentionally by the GRU. But we certainly have seen that. And I think the perception there, at least in terms of the vulnerability, has been more because so much of this is coming out of the the former Soviet Union and sort of that kind of general agreement that targeting isn't done in Russia and you can kind of, you have a little bit more latitude. I think we've seen sort of media reporting on disruptions in Iran, the most recent one with the, the train station where the, the trains were disrupted and kind of all of the things posted the Supreme Leader's sort of like personal office phone number and said, call this number for if you have any problem with the trains. We've seen disruptions in other countries as well, sometimes beyond the scale of what we've seen in the US. So I don't think it's a uniquely US problem. I think it's, it's certainly the one we sitting in the US are focused on the most. So there's certainly a front of mind thing there, but I think it's a problem faced by all countries. At the risk of scaring everybody who's listening to this podcast, what is the most alarming either development you've been tracking or incident that you've observed recently that you think should be on folks' radars? Of ones you can share. I'm guessing there are ones you can't share. (laughs) Most of the stuff that we're aware of is out somewhere in public. I mean, there's certainly like, oh, hey, like this one country, like Spearfish, this other country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs that we see that doesn't get blogged. The big picture stuff is reported because it impacts people. There's only so much you can do covertly and not have anyone notice, but whether it's Colonial Pipeline or whether it's sort of some of the hospital ransomware stuff. I think that we're working towards a solution there. I don't think the problem has gone away. There's definitely been some progress. So I think that's going to continue to be a threat. There's not a sort of super dig dark sort of Damocles hanging over us. I think there is definitely cause for, we don't want to be resilient. We want to sort of track this stuff. But most of the sort of really big disruptive events have been done in situations where there were already some other thing going on. Obviously, the Russian stuff in Ukraine, the Saudi Aramco, Shamoon stuff, Operation Ababil, things like that. Like there was high tensions before and yeah, I mean, the thing I go back to is like Operation Ababil or things like that that were disrupting the U.S. were bad, but not any worse than the sort of alleged Iranian plot to 
blow up Cafe Milano in Georgetown. Like that would have been real bad too. So it's uncommon that we see people going so far beyond what they would do otherwise in the cyber realm. Now, if you step back, there's like bigger picture espionage stuff, sort of like long-term strategic competitiveness that are a big problem, but that is, that's a decade old problem that we are continuing to deal with and things like that. But there's not some hidden thing that I know about that like isn't on people's radar, I guess. On the flip side, so that we can close on a more positive note, is there any exciting new work, tools, defensive capabilities, startups that you're seeing in the cybersecurity space that you're that you're really excited about or or that make you feel optimistic? Cybersecurity is a very big space and very obviously after this podcast don't have all the answers. I mean, I think that the most optimistic stuff I think is I mean, yeah, the, the progress on identity management. I mean, that's so much of what's important. I mean, two-factor keys sort of continuing to get there, two-factor authentication. I mean, I think the the solar wind stuff like was a big intrusion, but was caught and sort of has been dealt with and they've come back and doing different things and we're continuing to combat them. But these things are out there, but they are being found. It is a give and take and things like that. But I do think that sort of investing in security, it's a long tail in terms of the legacy of stuff and things like that. But I do think it is on people's radars. It is sort of being baked in. You have increasing, and this is going to turn really technical and nerdy in a sec, but sort of the increasing adoption of memory-safe languages versus sort of more historically not. And the internet and sort of computers are such a pyramid built on the 70s, 80s, 90s that are, are getting done, but sort of the, the work to sort of secure that and sort of retrofit things is continuing. But I do think it is definitely moving forward. It is getting better. So I don't have a specific startup to shout out or things like that, but I do think we are we are making progress on the defensive side. Well, with that, let's turn to our final segment where we all talk about something we're following. Zoe, what are you following this week? I've been following developments uh, at Guantanamo. It was just recently reported that there are two more detainees that have been cleared for release from Guantanamo. And this is of great interest to me because I actually spent some time in 2018 working as a legal observer in Guantanamo. And so I think I followed the, the legal proceedings more closely than, than most do. And there's now uh, 39 detainees who are, who are left there. There was uh, about 44 uh, when I was there in 2018. So the numbers are coming down. Um, but, you know, I think there's still a very unclear path to closure of the facility and, uh, yeah, a lot of lack of clarity of, uh, around how the story ends. Ben, what are you following this week? So in a, in a very different direction, we finally got in the mail the book that I think I had joined the Kickstarter for with a couple of years ago. And so now my children are a little bit older, but the, the Children's Clausewitz book um, that I think has, has been floating around and there's limited how much I can read it. I have a, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And so the five-year-old will listen. The two-year-old, you know, likes the pictures of bunnies and, and things like that. But it's been a, been a fun read and it's been fun to sort of revisit sort of that book, which I read, read in grad school and, and things like that through through a very imaginative presentation of it. So Children's Clausewitz is my the thing I'm tracking. For the thing I'm following this week is I just want to give an update on the situation in Ethiopia. For those of, of you who don't remember, there is the most northern state in Ethiopia, Tigray, was having some issues with the central government. It fell into 
rebellion and basically now outright civil war. There have been accusations of the use of sexual assault and rape as weapons of war. Hundreds of thousands are being pushed into famine. Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced throughout the region. There's been some actual fighting across the line between Ethiopia and Eritrea, which is not good since they just came to sort of a peaceful resolution of their conflict only a few years ago. But most recently, the central government in Ethiopia is pushing a new major offensive with the goal of finding a military solution to this problem. The rebel-held areas are being increasingly blockaded and humanitarian assistance has not been allowed through. I really cannot bang the table loud enough on this issue. Everything is deteriorating and the United States has basically been nowhere. I get that we shouldn't be the world's policemen, but that also doesn't mean we should only care about human rights when it matters to our quote-unquote national security. But with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show so that more people can find it. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and hate tweet crypto tweets at Ben at Bread08. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, please be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Darkside. We build the ransomware so you don't have to. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.